Welcome to BioCentury This Week. I'm Jeff Cranmer, Executive Editor of BioCentury, and I'm joined by... Simon Fishburn, Editor-in-Chief. Steve Austin, Washington Editor. And Karen Tkach-Tesman, Senior Editor. On this week's pod, as expected, ODAC rubber stamps FDA's repudiation of a BLA from Innovent and Lilly for a PD-1 inhibitor. What does it mean for other companies, particularly those in China? The distillery. We've just published our three-part series on translational trends over the past year. BioCentury This Week is brought to you by ICON, a leading clinical research organization powered by healthcare intelligence. ICON advances clinical research by providing outsourced services to pharma, biotech, and other healthcare organizations. ICON offers a flexible partnership model for biotechs, starting in the preclinical phase through real-world studies and into commercialization. Learn more at iconplc.com slash biotech. Well, we've been following this one closely, following FDA's very public repudiation of Tyvit from Innovent and Eli Lilly last week. Sponsors will have to reassess their plans to seek U.S. approval for checkpoint inhibitors developed with clinical data solely or predominantly from China. Simone and Steve, you've been following this story very closely. What have you been hearing from companies out there? So it's pretty clear that this is a huge story in China. A large number of biotechs there have cancer products. As we know, we've done the analysis. Many of them have PD-1s. But they're really looking at this more broadly. They are actually trying to figure out what it means for them. I think one lesson that we're hearing getting through quite hard is that China companies need to talk to FDA. Steve, what do you think it actually means for other developers, and in particular in China? So one thing I think is that it's yet another example of the axiom that shortcuts don't work in biopharma. The pages of BioCentury for two decades are littered with examples, one example after another, of companies that thought that they came up with some kind of a brilliant shortcut around a regulatory issue, and um, they almost never work. This is another example of that. I think another thing that's really important to keep in mind is that this is probably limited to PD-1s or checkpoint inhibitors. It's not something broad about all of China drug development, especially it's not gonna be as relevant for innovative drugs for first-in-class uh, molecules, for example. I think that it's not going to affect all PD-1 development. FDA was very careful to say that PD-1s that are being developed for conditions that are much, much more common in China than they are in the United States, that they would accept data that was either exclusively or predominantly from China. Having said that, so who's it going to affect? It's going to affect companies that are developing drugs using the same model that Innovent and, and Lilly did the two most obvious ones right now are EQRX and Coherus. EQRX is developing a, a PD-1 that it acquired from Seastone Pharmaceuticals. It's also for non-small cell lung cancer. Coherus is developing a PD-1 that has um, a license from Shanghai Junshi Biosciences. In both of those cases, it's not only 
the data is coming exclusively from China, but they've also crossed another red line that FDA mentioned in the Innovate ODAC meeting, which is that the comparator arms were chemotherapy. And what Rick Pastor, the head of the uh, Oncology Center of Excellence, and other senior FDA officials made very clear is that they don't want to approve a PD-1 for non-small cell lung cancer unless the comparator arm included a PD-1 that has had a demonstrated overall survival advantage. And they had two reasons for that. One is they don't think that those studies are applicable to the U.S. population because the standard of care now in the United States is a PD-1 that's been shown to provide a survival advantage. And two, they don't think that those studies are ethical. They don't think that it's ethical to expose patients in a clinical trial to anything less than a PD-1 that provides a survival advantage. Yeah, I just want to add to that. We had John Euler on the Biocentury show last week. John Euler, founder and CEO of Beijing, which is one of the most prominent China companies. They're a global company. Euler made it clear their trials are multi-regional clinical trials. He's a strong believer in global trials. He actually agreed with Pasta about a lot of the things that Pasta said. And he also said that, you know, the China ecosystem is going to play out such that there will be companies who can commercialize drugs and there will be companies who can run global clinical trials and be successful. And then there's going to be sort of a fairly large number of research companies. And what we're hearing is in China, a lot of people agree with that. They, of course, also will think that they will be the successful companies, but a lot of people do agree with the need for global trials. There is one other thing that Euler said, and I think a lot of people feel this as well. It's not really specifically about PASDA's comments on PD-1 development, but the number of hurdles that you create for clinical trials is of concern. I think that refers to the idea that you do need multiple drugs on the market against a particular target. There shouldn't be a cap because you never know when the best one is going to come. It could be the third or the fourth or the fifth or the sixth or whatever. I think there's a lot of agreement inside China as well about the position FDA is taking as well as sort of trepidation. And that actually points to an interesting issue that's also specific to the PD-1s, which is that FDA and Rick Bowser especially have taken the position that the world doesn't really need more PD-1s. And he said that he believes that there needs to be data to demonstrate, to differentiate any new PD-1s from ones that are already on the market. And the default assumption at FDA seems to be that they're all the same. And that's one of the reasons why more are needed. That's a little bit difficult to square that with saying that we need to make sure that they actually work the same in non-Chinese populations. But there you go. Those are the two issues that are out there that seem to be driving this. We launched the BioCentury show last month. It's our 30-minute in-depth conversation with some of the most prominent people in life sciences. Our first two conversations are ready for viewing. Of course, John Euler, as we just mentioned, and we kick the series off with Steve's conversation with Scott Gottlieb, the former FDA commissioner who is now on many, many boards and is a partner at NEA the VC firm coming up. Other guests that we have scheduled, Steve Pearson from ICER, Otello Stampaccia from Omega Funds, Mike Gato of JP Morgan, Lori Glimcher, Laura 
Esserman, Samantha Du, Jamie Rubin. Looking forward to having those conversations. Some really great insights. Well, let's stay with DC. There's a lot going on right now. We hope a vote on the FDA commissioner nominee, Rob Califf. The president had a few things to say about drug pricing. And there was some chatter about marching rights for a pretty high profile prostate cancer therapy. Steve, bring us up to speed. Califf vote. We're expecting the Senate to vote on Rob Califf's nomination this week. One would assume that because Chuck Schumer scheduled the vote, that he's counted on his hands and toes and decided that there are enough votes to get him passed. I think it's going to be close. I think that most people in the biopharma world hope that that it's a positive vote and that we have a, a Senate-confirmed FDA commissioner by the time we do the podcast next week. On uh, Biden's comments, he was speaking at Germana Community College in Culpeper, Virginia. It was kind of a campaign event with Representative Spanberger, who's running. Her district um, has shifted, and she's facing a tough vote. So the president went down there to try to help her out. And he made remarks about the need, from his perspective, to lower drug prices. And in, in so doing, he said that he believed that drugs should be considered utilities and that they should be priced at a percentage above the cost of R&D and manufacturing. That's a view that I think most people in the industry would take an issue with. And the third thing that you mentioned is extending. NIH sent an email to one of the petitioners who's trying to get NIH to exercise its margin rights on the patents on extendi. That email was sent, I think, on January the 10th, and it said that NIH would be making a decision in about a month as to whether or not it's going to pursue that. It's interesting that it's making that decision now in the absence of Francis Collins, that he's stepped out as director. Over the years, Francis Collins was adamantly opposed to FDA exercising margin rights, and it would have been really difficult for NIH to change with Francis Collins in place. A lot of people would argue that it's still going to be really difficult for NIH to change, but I think the advocates who are favoring exercising margin rights believe that at least they have more of a chance now than they did with Francis Collins in place. Quick question on that, Steve. I think a lot of people in the industry view skeptically that that would ever go anywhere, maybe because there's been such opposition from Collins for so long. Is there reason for them to be more concerned? Do you think they're still going to just sort of say, yeah, 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 let's see it when it happens? I don't know what's going to happen, but there are reasons for them to be more concerned. One of the reasons for them to be more concerned is that the HHS secretary, Becerra, advocated for margin rights when he was the attorney general of California. He wrote a letter to HHS, to then HHS secretary Alex Azar for the Trump administration, saying that NIH should do precisely what the advocates are asking it to do now in the case of Xtandi. It's a little bit obscure. It's not clear who's going to be making the decision. I think there was also a feeling that when Eric Lander was the head of OSTP and the president's science advisor, that he would have a big say in making a decision. He's obviously out of the picture now. I think most people would think that he would have opposed the exercise of margin rights. So again, it's, um, it's not clear who's going to make the decision. And I think that because of that, it's not as obvious what the decision is going to be. Let's turn now to the distillery. We just published a three-part analysis 
of nearly 300 translational opportunities. And we have some updates about how we deliver you the distillery on our website, biocentury.com. Karen, what's new? So it is a big day for the distillery. A bunch of things are new. One is, as you mentioned, Jeff, we had this analysis digging into the distillery items that we've published over the last year to spot some trends. And so for those not familiar, the distillery is a collection of short, brief summaries of translational papers with near-term relevance for drug development opportunities. So in general, we're highlighting either new targets in biology for a disease area or perhaps new technologies to get at perhaps some known biology or some new biology. And in general, this is work coming out of academic labs. And what we do is we scour the literature for papers where there's a disease-modifying experiment, there's a translational opportunity near at hand, and evaluate the ones we think are most interesting, write these short summaries and reach out to the authors for some IP information when available, and put these out on a monthly basis. What we can periodically do is take a retrospective look at the items we've published, say, over a period of a year, line things up and look for patterns and trends that indicate where some exciting fields are going. And so we highlighted cancer, infectious disease, and neurology because those were the three biggest areas sort of numerically in the distillery. And that's been pretty consistent sort of year over year and reflects funding in a lot of ways for research. It's been interesting to call out, for example, targets that were nominated by papers in the distillery where they had some biomarker data from patient samples, which is a pretty key de-risking piece of information that people are generally hoping to see. But yet there's no products in BCIQ for those targets in that disease, that whole disease area. And so we call that a white space target, for example. So we've called out a bunch of those and we've pointed out some trends, for example, perhaps not surprisingly, a bunch of targeted degraders for cancer that we nominated and in infectious diseases, looking at hitting host targets to get at either the virus itself or the host pathology around infection. And then some interesting stuff in neurology as well, including a new angle at the amyloid hypothesis. So these are the kinds of things that you can see if you check out this three-part story package yeah, it was a, a lot of fun to write. And, and one of the things that we really like to do there is highlight the investigators. So who are the people doing the research? What universities? So hopefully people can follow up with them if they're interested. I would point out last week, we had a story about efforts to create ARPA-H, a DARPA-like project for health in the United States. And I think that the white spaces that you're identifying in the distillery are exactly the kind of things that people would envision ARPA-H moving forward. Yeah, that's a great point. In addition to the US-based researchers who probably are first in line to get money from ARPA-H, the distillery actually is agnostic, I think, right, Karen, in terms of where the researchers are from. And so you also have like a cool map showing the different locations in the world. And I know that quite often people are looking to some degree, by geography, they're sort of saying, oh, is there, you know, an innovator in Germany or what's hot in the UK and things like that. So you have a little bit of geography information about the investigators as well. Yeah. And it was interesting to see for those three different disease areas, we also called out some institutes that had multiple papers that showed up in the distillery. And it really is agnostic when we're going through 
we're really grabbing at the the titles and the abstracts and then saying, okay, I guess it's from this group. So we come up with a really interesting sampling from around the world. For example, you mentioned Germany. The DKFZ Cancer Center came up a bunch in our cancer distilleries. So things like that to look out for. And then coinciding with this release of this three-part series, we also have our latest fresh batch of distillery items over the last month. I always like to highlight a couple of those. Going off of that trend of host targeting for infectious disease, there were two papers that highlighted strategies like that. One was implicating SARS-CoV-2 activation of sting as part of what drives rapid pathology in patients who decline swiftly. And so the idea that going after sting inhibition for some of these rapidly declining severe patients could be an avenue. And then another one also for COVID-19 was around inhibiting BRD2, the epigenetic regulator, because it looks like BRD2 controls ACE2 expression, and that's the host receptor that the virus uses to get in. That's just a little sampling of the kind of things we have in the distillery, which you can now find in this nice, convenient new place. So if you go to biosentry.com, you'll see a nice little icon this week directing you directly to our new distillery page, which can also be found at biocentry.com slash analysis slash distillery. In there, we've got the distillery items available for browsing. We've got a, a search button that can help you search for specific things within the distillery. And then we've also got some tabs highlighting another recurrent feature, which is our translation in brief. And that is where we highlight sometimes from papers, sometimes from conference presentations. But here we're looking at company activity that's translational and also platform or other tools and techniques that could maybe apply to a broad range of therapeutic opportunities. And what I'll highlight there briefly is we had this twofer from Nature Biotechnology that was highlighting circular ADAR recruiting guide RNAs to increase the efficiency of A to I RNA editing with decreased bystander editing. And so this is one of those back-to-back publication situations. And one paper came from Edigene, a company founded by Wensheng Wei, Peking University. And then there was a similar technology published by Shape Therapeutics with their co-founder, Prashant Mali from the University of California, San Diego. All of this and more can be seen at biocentry.com slash analysis slash distillery. Excellent. Thank you for that, Karen. And uh, we always look forward to having you at the start or almost start of every month to tell us about your new finds. And of course, listeners can always go to our website to catch up on what they may have missed. Also on biocentry.com, we are continuing to follow the bear market story from multiple angles, as our listeners know all too well, painfully well, biotech is enduring one of its worst bear markets in many years. But investors are starting to take advantage of this. They're positioning themselves to buy into companies that had significant de-risking events in the past year, but weren't rewarded by the market due to the negative sentiment. Our colleague, Stephen Hansen, has produced a bear market shopping list for you to take to the store. So that story is up online. And we have our second story in the two-part analysis on emerging companies 
from the BioCentury Emerging Company Class of 2020. This slice looks at 19 cell therapy startups among the 118 companies we profiled in the series last year. And our colleague, Danielle Golovin, did a nice little piece there. So go to biocentury.com and check that out as well. All of BioCentury's podcasts are available on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and believe it or not, Google. Kendall Square Orchestra provides the music for our podcasts. The group connects science and technology professionals and other members of the greater Boston community to collaborate, innovate, and inspire through music while supporting causes related to healthcare and education.